Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we explore Jung's thoughts about the capacity for reflection and why he sees it as an essential component of our humanity. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Reflection should be understood not simply as an act of thought, but rather as an attitude. It's a privilege born of human freedom in contradistinction to the compulsion of natural law. As the word itself testifies, reflection means literally bending back. Reflection is a spiritual act that runs counter to the natural process, an act whereby we stop, call something to mind, form a picture, and take up a relation to and come to terms with what we have seen. It should, therefore, be understood as an act of becoming conscious. core premise of this podcast is that living in a world as steeped in technology as ours is presents a particular challenge to the experience of the inner life and, by extension, to the practice of the symbolic life. And one of the central problems of this present moment in time has to be distraction. In my book, I make the following statement. It cannot be denied that our current age is a distracted one. The technological boom that we have been living in for the last century or so has proceeded so rapidly that it has been impossible for human beings to establish an adequate relationship to all the changes it has wrought philosophical, spiritual, and ethical questions require time and space for reflection. And this is just what our technologies have made increasingly scarce. And so we come again in this podcast to a consideration of the need to slow down, to step back and to practice the discipline of silence. This is a crucial need, not only for our inner life, but for our very humanity. And this is just what Jung is talking about in that 
opening quote, The Undeniable Importance of Reflection. And in that quote, he makes four interrelated points, which I'd like to look at more closely here to see if we can gain a deeper understanding of this essential psychological function. And the first point that Jung makes is that what we're considering is something different than just thinking about something. Reflection, he says, should be understood not simply as an act of thought, but rather as an attitude. So what does that mean? That reflection is not so much thought as it is attitude. Well, it means a couple of things. On the one hand, it means that we are not talking about content. It's not primarily about what we hold in our minds, but rather how we hold it. It's not about the possession of certain ideas or insights, though those may certainly come, but about the spirit with which we meet those ideas. And on the other hand, it means that reflection is not something that we do to something else. That is, it's not an operation that we perform on whatever data lies before us. It's more a state of receptivity and curiosity. And together, these suggest that when Jung talks about reflection, he's describing a way of paying attention to psychological phenomena, to the experience of our minds. And I would suggest that this quality of attention is similar to what I called pregnant unknowing back in episode 27, Working With Your Dreams. The second point that Jung makes is that it's our capacity for reflection that gives us a relative freedom from our biological instincts. And this is what he means when he says, it's a privilege born of human freedom in contradistinction to the compulsion of natural law. We're not just biological beings driven by the reactivity of our automatic impulses. But we have a unique ability, a privilege, he says, to step back from those impulses. Reflection is freedom from compulsion. In Christian theology, this quality of psychological freedom is conceptualized as the difference between bios and zoe, both Greek words for life. Raymond Panikkar describes the different connotations of these words as the difference between pure physical chemical biology, bios, and humanly conscious life, zoe. Put another way, we could say that it's the difference between mere existence and meaningful existence. 
Or to borrow yet another idea, this time from the Jungian analyst James Hillman, it's the difference between events and experiences, right? Through reflection, an event becomes an experience. That is, it's something with meaning that's integrated into the story of our lives. And prior to that, it's merely a thing that happened to us. And this, in turn, leads to Jung's third point, which is that reflection belongs to the spiritual side of our existence. It is, he says, a spiritual act that runs counter to the natural process. In alchemy, a system of ideas which Jung understood as being as much of a symbolic description of psychological processes, even more than it was a kind of proto-chemistry. There's a concept called the opus contra naturum, which means the work against nature. And this is what Jung is alluding to when he says that reflection is a spiritual act that runs counter to the natural process. Reflection, in other words, is an opus contra naturum. Now, this doesn't mean that it's opposed to nature. Rather, it means that it has the ability to release us from the merely blind and automatic impulsion of nature. In fact, it might be easier to understand it as a work against inertia. The alchemical idea is that spiritual nature acts upon blind nature to raise it to its fullest potential. And there's another alchemical maxim that states, what nature left imperfect, the art perfect. We need this spiritual opus contra naturum, this art, because without some overriding perspective on our experience, we merely live at the mercy of our many conflicting and competing instincts. Human instincts are not all harmoniously arranged, writes Jung. They are perpetually jostling each other out of the way. The ancients were optimistic enough to see this struggle not as a chaotic muddle, but as aspiring to some higher order. And it's the work of reflection that allows for the development of this higher order. And this is why the spirit is often expressed through images that emphasize height or ascent. The spiritual act of reflection allows us to get above our instinctual life and see things with a new and wider and more comprehensive perspective. In the religious traditions, the opus contra naturum is usually expressed through some kind of asceticism, an intense practice of self-discipline and a, a kind of generalized abstinence. 
And these ascetic practices tend to have a bad reputation and to be seen as morbid, but they really should be understood as the discipline of separating oneself from the jumble and the chaos of internal and external events for the purpose of achieving personal freedom and for the development of one's deepest potentials. From this perspective, we can see that what the religious monastic does is not so different from an athlete in training, right? There's a limiting of which instincts one indulges, food or sex or even rest or sleep, and a consistent and intensive practice for developing the desired potential. And this ascetic dimension of reflection is what Jung is pointing to when he describes it as the act whereby we stop, call something to mind, form a picture, and take up a relation to and come to terms with what we have seen. Now, so far we've looked at reflection as an attitude of receptivity and curiosity, as a necessary component of psychological freedom, and as the heart of our spiritual potential. And all that's been said so far is perfectly summed up in this quote from the philosopher Schopenhauer. It is indeed wonderful to see how human beings, besides their life in the concrete, always live a second life in the abstract. In the former, they are abandoned to all the storms of reality and to the influence of the present. They must struggle, suffer, and die like the animal. But their life in the abstract, as it stands before their rational consciousness, is the calm reflection of their life in the concrete and of the world in which they live. Here in the sphere of calm deliberation, what previously possessed them completely and moved them intensely appears to them cold, colorless, and for the moment, foreign and strange. They are mere spectators and observers. In respect of this withdrawal into reflection, they're like actors who have played their part in one scene and take their place in the audience until they must appear again. In the audience, they quietly look on at whatever may happen, even though it be the preparation for their own death in the play. But then they go on stage and act and suffer as they must. What makes a human being human? For Jung, 
It's the act of becoming conscious. And that's the fourth and final point that he makes in his quote when he writes, Reflection should, therefore, be understood as an act of becoming conscious. For it's through our reflective capacities that we're able to take up a right relationship to life, that we're able to make sense of and endure all that happens to us. And for all that happens to us, no matter how dark and difficult it may be, to find a meaningful place in the story of our life. It allows us to step off the stage, to use Schopenhauer's image, and to get perspective on the drama in which we're involved, and to find the courage to live that drama, to return to the stage and act and suffer as we must. The mystics of every tradition are the model of those individuals who have given the art of reflection a primary place in their life, an art to which they most often give the name contemplation. But even those unique individuals who make so much of having quit the world state very clearly that contemplation is not an end in itself. Contemplation is always a preparation for action in the world, for stepping back onto the stage of our lives. Evelyn Underhill, for instance, who made an extensive study of mysticism in her lifetime, makes it clear that if the object of contemplation is merely one's own spiritual self-cultivation, that would be what she calls a horrible idea. Speaking from the religious perspective, she writes, the object can only be to make the soul more creative, more effective, more useful to God, to increase in it spiritual energy, genuine and fruitful personality, to make it, in fact, more and more capable of work. And Jung makes a similar statement from the psychological perspective. The act of reflection that attends the process of individuation, he says, pulls one away from the sphere of collective activity, that is, from the concrete action of the world. One must he writes, offer a ransom in place of oneself. That is, one must bring forth values which are an equivalent substitute for one's absence in the collective personal sphere. In other words, the withdrawal into reflection is ultimately for the benefit of life in the world, to be able to bring into existence new values, new ways of being, new understandings, new creative works that enhance life in this world. 
And for the takeaway here, I want to come back to where we started. With our distracted life in this technological world that is so disruptive to our engagement with our inner lives. If our opportunities for reflection, for stepping back or getting above the flow of events is interrupted, the potential for developing our full humanity is endangered. To see the needs of another person, for instance, requires us to be able to get some distance from our own immediate needs and appetites. To ensure a healthy future, whether that's in our own fragile bodies or on this increasingly fragile planet, requires the ability to postpone our momentary gratification and hold in mind that which is not yet, but could be. To unfold and actualize our deepest nature and potential requires the courage to imagine something beyond the norms of conventional collective life. And all of this requires that we become, in a sense, more than ourselves, more than just a me, a creature who only sees as far as their appetites and impulses. We need a wider vision, a higher perspective, and for this we need a practiced capacity for reflection. Reflection is the act of becoming conscious, which means becoming human. And for Jung, human consciousness had a cosmic significance. Our knowing of the world was akin to the very creation of the world. For without consciousness, he felt, the world would never rise out of what he spoke of as the profoundest night of non-being. For Jung, it was this, our capacity for consciousness, that gave human beings their indispensable place in the cosmos. And this insight is not unique to Jung. It's beautifully echoed by a quote from Raymond Panikkar, and he expresses it this way. The destiny of the universe passes in and through us. Once the us, of course, has been purified of all that is our private property, we are not isolated beings. We bear the burden, the responsibility, but also the joy and the beauty of the universe. Until next time. Yo. 
You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.